So, hello, my name's Alex Rutt-King. I'm a barrister at Durkheim Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And it's a joy to be joined in the shed on this um, slightly grey day today, but be joined in the shed by Dr Bev Clough. Anyone who's ever watched one of these or heard one of these before will know I really want the person I'm speaking to to, to talk to me about themselves rather than me trying to, as it were, mansplain who they are. So, Bev, over to you. Just, just sort of give us a pen picture of yourself and... and in particular, and then segue into the book we want to talk about. Lovely. Thanks, Alex. And thank you for inviting me to, to talk about the book. Um, yeah, so I'm Bev Clough. I'm an Associate Professor in Law and Social Justice at the University of Leeds. Um, so I'm a member of uh, the Centre for Law and Social Justice and, uh, and the Centre for Disability Studies at Leeds. So I kind of cross between like a disability studies approach to law and thinking through kind of questions of social justice as well, um, particularly applied to healthcare law and mental capacity law, mental health law. Brilliant, brilliant. And one of the reasons I really wanted you to come into the shed virtually today was, was to talk about the book, which has come out really very recently, recording this in May 2022. Um, so tell me about the book. So yeah, I can tell you about maybe what prompted the book um, to begin with, and then uh, maybe talk a little bit more about what it's about. So yes, yeah, please. I think, yeah, part of the, the motivation for writing it was frustration, I guess. Um, so I'd been thinking through my PhD about questions around mental capacity law um, and relational autonomy in particular and vulnerability theory. And I was really interested in what these kind of exposed about problems with mental capacity law or, you know, how decisions could be made better or uh, differently if we took that sort of approach. Um, and I was also quite interested in um, disability and how disability featured in mental capacity law. So, uh, yeah, I guess one level of frustration was that disability seemed to be quite absent in, um, or certainly critical approaches to disability were quite absent in, um, in a lot of discussions of mental capacity law that were, that were going on. Um, so I thought, you know, what, what would engage him with this really interesting body of literature um, and, you know, really vital critical disability studies what would that inject into discussions around mental capacity law? So I was quite interested in that. Um, also thinking about what that would, you know, engaging with law and disability would take back to critical disability studies as well, um, to allow, you know, thinking through about law and law's role in disability. Um, but also a kind of frustration that whenever I felt like I was getting somewhere with relational autonomy or vulnerability theory, I was kind of hitting up against this big question of paternalism and the limit of the state. Um, and it felt almost physical. So I talk about it as like hitting up against, it really felt like you'd get somewhere, you get somewhere, but no, you can't get past that question because paternalism um, or, you know, that's not the role of the state. And I was, you know, I just thought we've spent a lot of time now um, you know, we as kind of feminist legal theorists or mental capacity scholars or medical lawyers, we've spent a lot of time critiquing autonomy um, and thinking about relational approaches to autonomy. But I found that what's less kind of engaged with critically is the flip side of that paternalism. And that felt almost like that was this kind of static thing that we just cannot get past. Um, 
So, you know, in, originally I was thinking maybe kind of critique of paternalism through this lens might be the way forward. But actually, when I started to dig down into it, it it's not just that kind of autonomy or paternalism thing that's the problem. I found that that binary was very much mutually interwoven with a range of other binaries. And when I started thinking about it in that way, like I say, it was almost like a physical, it, it looked very physical to me, this map of how they all fit together. And that's when I started to think about the kind of the spatial element of it. So spatial, not just in terms of like material space. I think that's a really important part of it. And you can see that in, um, you know, some of the case law when you start thinking about uh, where these questions are arising, but also the discursive space. So, um, you know, what, what boundaries do these binaries place on our thinking and how we're allowed to talk about things or, you know, how we're allowed to think about it or respond um, to legal issues. It, it, it's almost constrained by this very stark binary kind of context that we've got. So that spatial approach to me seemed a really interesting way to go about it and to start thinking about these binaries and how they create very stark boundaries that we just struggle against, I think, when we start to think through the tricky questions around mental capacity law. So just to sort of bring that home, because it's it's super interesting, and, and the book obviously has got the, the, you know, you do the groundwork of establishing this the sort of discussion and, and thinking mm. it through, and then you start kind of turning to look at some of the binaries. So just sort of give you talked about empowerment and and autonomy also sort of paternalism and autonomy you know that you know the core empowerment mm. protection these things which is you know, kind of yeah. flung around quite often i mean just give me a sense of how you feel we're trapped into that just on that particular binary before perhaps we move on to some of the other binaries so the, this kind of autonomy and paternalism and empowerment protection so one of the the things that I was doing at the beginning of the book was to look through a lot of the Law Commission's early work about how this was framed. Um, and I think a big part of it to me anyway is the kind of the medical roots of the question. And I think if you look at when, uh, when these questions started to arise and the case law, it was around the time that autonomy was kind of in the ascendancy in this kind of bioethics literature that was that was generating. So I think a big part of it is that that context um, mm -hmm. and autonomy was very much a preoccupation in the kind of the 80s and the 90s of the bioethics and the medical medical ethics literature. And I think that, you know, I, I talk a little bit in the book about the, the roots of um, the questions that the Law Commission were asking as being very much tied to that time. Um, so it feels very much like that set the tone for the parameters of the discussion. And, you know, autonomy was, was really important. And it was this very kind of li liberal in the kind of the liberal legalism sense of what we mean by autonomy. Um, and it was, um, yeah, very kind of information driven rather than um, this more relational approach to autonomy. So what we see here is that the influence of others is quite, this seems quite suspicious. Um, whereas, you know, it's, it's built on this idea um, that feminist um, legal critics talk about this idea of this autonomous, um, unencumbered male rational subject. 
and that seems to have really much very much driven the, the development of the mental capacity act and paternalism is then seen as any interference with that and when you start you know we don't want to interfere with people's decision making they're this free unencumbered rational individual um, and it's not the role of the state to start questioning that and we need to be suspicious of people that might um, interfere with with their kind of bounded blinkered autonomous decision making so I mean it's a very kind of straw man kind of caricature but that's I think there's a sense in which that was very much part of um, that that kind of bioethics context of autonomy was very much part of the the context at the time that the, the law commission were working with um, yeah and I guess on that hmm, I don't I don't want to preempt something that I'm thinking about what, where I'm going next with this and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later about the law commission's work and um yeah well no I, let, let's let, well why, why don't we why don't we go there because I just just followed that thought mm. through because you mean and then there are other binaries I'd like to sort of pick up on but but yeah so one of the things that seems to be emerging for me a little bit so thinking back to what the law commission were doing and what they were working with um is the, the kind of the third limb which was about the public law context and the public law powers. And that was part of what the Law Commission were looking at and taking that really wholesale approach to vulnerable adults. Um, and I think what seems to be emerging now is that the lack of, um, you know, the, the decision not to take that, that strand forward has almost prevented things that, could trouble that autonomy, paternalism and empowerment protection binary a little bit, that opportunity to really engage with that and recognise that um, and to, to start to disentangle them a little bit more, that was lost um, in that decision not to take that strand forwards. And now it, it seems to me that a lot of issues that possibly could have been um, sorted out I guess through that through that lens and through engaging with public law um the responsibilities there it's kind of coming home to roost and we've got all these little pockets of problems that are actually not necessarily issues about capacity and incapacity and um, kind of cognition and things but actually are to do with um for you know vulnerable people situationally vulnerable people um and more to do with the the obligations and the, the role of the state and other actors in how they've responded to that or not responded to that. Um, and the, the difficulty seems to now be that those issues are getting kind of collapsed into questions of capacity and best interests, which aren't necessarily able to deal with them fully. Yeah, and this is, this is such fascinating terrain. Um, and I mustn't allow my fascination with it to drive us down in particular any particular rabbit hole but but just one one sort of interesting one question which really came into my mind as you were speaking then is the phrase you used was sorted out so I'm, I'm presumed mm. by that you mean you know can we have a kind of democratic discussion through representative you know through our representative body mm. parliament sit down where we think and obviously the decision was taken we're not going to proceed with uh, uh, the strand of the law commission work which relates to individuals who are vulnerable we're going to kind of narrow it down to capacity incapacity but of course if the book is about law law has rushed in to fill the gap 
in relation to vulnerability. I mean, that's why we've got judges exercising Mm. the High Court's inherent jurisdiction over vulnerable adults. Mm. So I'm sort of interested in, in, because your book's fascinatingly thinking about law as a whole and the places of law and where law sits, I'm just very interested in your, you know, if there is a gap and law rushes in, you know, do you think it's better that things are Mm. sorted out by, you know, legislation or by judges making up solutions to problems? Mm. I feel... To me, the way that the kind of the inherent jurisdiction has kind of bubbled up as a way to to kind of quickly deal with some of these issues is concerning um, for a number of reasons, because obviously you've got the the kind of almost lack of um, clear process and obligations of people. It's, It's there's a sense in which it's kind of reasoning backwards, or I guess law quite often is, but I mean, quite explicitly to try and reach something you know a conclusion that people really want to see there um, to respond to potential harm that people uh, people will most likely come to um, I think the problem with doing it via the inherent jurisdiction I think I talked about this a little bit in the book actually is that it's almost following the same logics of the mental capacity act so it's um you know th- talking about best interests and um, some of the logics around the role of the state and what people can do it's kind of <laughs> the, you're almost backed into the corner and that you have to you have to follow that line of reason to a degree um, and that that can end up being problematic I think if you're then looking at legislative change slower um, obviously and I think <laughs> Um, when you look at the Mental Capacity Act and how long that took, and I think something that wouldn't be as uh, politically problematic as thinking about vulnerable adults and, um, you know, intervening in their lives, I guess that would be something that would probably take a lot longer if it got off the ground at all. Um, I think, though, that the, the CRPD, and if we really wanted to take that seriously and the government really um, wanted to 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 engage with it fully um I think that's something that's unavoidable I think we're going to have to go down that route to a certain degree and start thinking about the obligations of states and actors and to start potentially chipping away that capacity and capacity binary in the way that disability and non-disability is is entangled in it and yeah I think for me anyway it's inevitable that we need to get to that point or to at least have a forum to to fully engage with those questions. Well, you're, you're preaching to the converted here because, <laughs> as I think you know, I, I think it's ripe for somebody looking at it because I think mm-hmm. there are a whole swirl of questions wandering around here because yeah. part of us, we just don't, you know, we haven't had the chance to have the discussion about who precisely do we think we should be intervening in relation to what are we yeah. doing and why are we doing it? Um, yeah. But I, I do really want to also just just because uh, it, it's it's as it were your book, and I, I'm really interested in the other aspects which you draw out in the book. We sort of had a, mm-hmm. a bit of a think about the that one that first binary, and I one of the other. I mean, there, there are other binaries you pick up, but mm-hmm. one I'm really interested in, if I, if I may, in picking up now is is the the, the kind of public private binary, which yeah. I just think is is really really interesting, and I think it's one of the bits. Having been involved in one of the big cases there is one of the bits I kind of read with, you know, yeah, fascinated to see your take on it. And so, can you just give mm. me your your 
the kind of the nutshell version obviously please everyone go off and read the book but the kind of nutshell version of what you were trying to get what you're wanting to get at there in trying to unpick some of this yeah so um the case law really started to get me to think about this public private divide and the cases that you were involved with and the way that the court protection were kind of painted as powerless um to do much in cases where um, someone was found to lack capacity and the question was about in, um, when it comes to their best interests, what are the options? Um, what, you know, so when we're filling in this kind of best interest question um, and looking at the available options, if um, the local authority or a doctor is unwilling to provide a particular treatment or pr provide a particular service, what can the court protection do about it um, and the answer is well not much they can't force someone to provide resources that's um, a kind of public law question that's for judicial review and um, that's not for the court protection that's not for the mental capacity act really to deal with you can only choose um, from the available options and there's this very stark divide there between the kind of private law questions that the mental capacity act was seen to deal with and the public law questions um you know about resources access to resources obligations on um the kind of institutional obligations that there are um and I, i'm obviously quite disappointed by this because it seemed to me uh, that what was really at stake in these in these cases wasn't really about um kind of discrete decisions and checking someone's cognition in relation to that and how they understand it and um, best interests. It, this was about the obligations that other people have, um, you know, un, under kind of the Care Act, et cetera, but making sure that their voice was, was driving that um, and driving what was, um, you know, decisions about their day-to-day -day lives and where they live, et cetera. It, it really felt to me like the Mental Capacity Act um, didn't offer much, if anything, there. It actually was working to ingrain what, for most people, is really not, um, you know, totally unsuitable living arrangements. But it seemed that in saying that, so in the, the court saying that, you know, we can't do anything about this, we are going to have to say it's in their best interest, potentially kind of begrudgingly, but we're going to have to. It's a lesser of two evils. That's ingraining to me. That that sends signals out that that that's that's okay, um, and I think this kind of the jurisdictional question, this public-private jurisdictional question. In the book, I talk a little bit about um, how that's kind of navigated and created by the judges in these cases um, to create this kind of image of powerlessness um, that I guess could be different. Um, I think that's that's the thing that strikes me that it, it, it could be different. And I think that's the thing that strikes me with a lot of the dichotomies, they could be, they could be drawn differently um, for different outcomes. Um, and I get, I can totally, I get this, this point about it being, you know, it's, it's for judicial review, it's not within the gift of um, the court protection judges, but it almost feels like that's, <clears throat> that to them is like an inevitability. And that, again, it's this very stark 
wall, we can't do it without recognizing that the extent to that which that wall has been created. It's, you know, and it, it's not necessarily a kind of natural pre-given wall that's always existed. It has been created. And the, the judges in engaging with these questions are either building walls or reinforcing walls that exist. And um, so it's that what I think what I'm getting at in that chapter is that they're very active participants in the drawing and redrawing of, bound, of these boundaries. Um, yeah. Well, just, 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 if I may sort of just tease that out very slightly. Yeah. So I'm just sort of, I mean, I, 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 I certainly see that we've got a situation where things have built up over time and, mm. you know, you could then have the, the last judge in the line, as it were, saying, well, all I'm doing is applying what everybody else has already mm. said. And of course, if you've got a Supreme Court saying, having said the thing, anyone, as it were, below the Supreme Court is slightly challenged to race off and do something different. Yeah. But I suppose I'm, I mean, I, I noted the reference you made to, you know, decisions being made, for instance, under the CARE Act. Mm. And I'm just sort of, if for one second, because the book is brilliant at outlining lots of problems, just, mm. just you know, for, to the last few minutes we've got, imagine you, Dr. Clough, were in charge of sorting this all out. On the public-private side, what would you do? I mean, how would you get it so that you get a change in the dynamic so it's not, you know, effectively mm. all we're trying to do, one way of characterising this is, all we're trying to do it through the guise of the court of protection is make sure the person's no worse off. I mean, that's all it can do is kind of just get the person to they're no worse off than their counterpart mm. in the next room along, say, who happens to have capacity. I mean, that's all you can do. Anything else, mm. well, isn't that almost discriminatory against the person with capacity? Because you've now got before a court, which has got, you know, a turbocharged yeah. power is one way yeah. of, of flipping, flipping it around. So I'm just really, yeah. it's hopefully not an unfair question, but I'd just be no. fascinated to know where, you know, what, how... And whether it's a question of, is it just completely ripping up and starting again? Mm. Or is it a question of, I don't know, you know, what is it a question? You know, where, where, think, what do you think? I, I think what you're saying really gets to this issue about the dynamics of the binaries and how they work together. So when you're talking there about, you know, is it kind of indirectly then discriminated towards people with capacity? Um, I think there's a, almost a false equivalence, and I think I talk about that a little bit in the book, where you know the um, that Justice King talks about you know what someone with capacity could do, which to me doesn't really fully um, engage with the, the totally different situation that people are in when they lack capacity, in related, when they seem to lack capacity, the someone with capacity. So. But I think that dynamic is really important because when we're looking at the Care Act, which isn't, you know, on the face of it, driven by capacity and incapacity, I think there's absolutely so much more that could be done in terms of obligations towards um, people under the Care Act. I think that's, you know, strengthening those would be really important, but kind of them working backwards. So what I feel... Um, and I don't know, I don't know on the ground how this then works out, but I also feel that there's almost a signal that could be sent out through cases where we've got this, you know, we we can't, you know, the court protection can't kind of dictate resources, etc. So um, unfortunately, we're, we're basically saying it's in someone's best interest to live in wholly unsuitable accommodation. Um, that almost signals to me that if someone lacks capacity 
under the mental capacity act and we're thinking about their care needs that takes off for me some of the the heat that that could otherwise be around ensuring that it is um the best care possible um if you have got a kind of tight resources and you're having to direct them in a particular way if someone lacks capacity um, and I guess the question is capacity in relation to what and that the framing of the decision is something that is something that I really want to to dig down into in the future um, does that then take off some of the the heat around ensuring that they can access the best resources in in finite circumstances um, I'm absolutely not saying that that is what would happen or that that is the sort of you know the thought process of people who are making these decisions but it's kind of the flip side of what you were saying I think that dynamic between and the way that capacity and incapacity can then be kind of subtly part of the process of allocating resources but then it so it kind of appears but then it it disappears um which is you know something that I'm I find with the mental capacity act and the way that these um the binaries work is that it ends up just because we have to collapse everything into them to make sense of things it means that all this broader stuff is it can continue and but it, it can't be computed by the mental capacity act. so it can't be talked about in that way by the mental capacity act because everything has to be talked about in the language of assessing capacity and best interests and they're the only ways that you can any levers. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things, that would, sadly, I mean, I'd love to keep chatting about talking to you about this all day because I think it's it is just fascinating. Almost, and I've put this to you, and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. I mean, I've been thinking lots of zones that, in some ways, I mean, the medical asset is great, you know, really interesting, really important piece of legislation. But in a way, it's almost problematic sometimes that it exists because people yeah. stampede towards it. Mm, whereas yeah. people regularly forget it's not giving you power to do anything it's not yeah. telling you to do anything your obligations to do stuff come from somewhere else yeah and sometimes it's it means that the focus gets too quickly down to capacity incapacity without yeah. having asked and yeah. i'm coming out from a very kind of boring pragmatic you know hra obligations in a case yeah. about you know, potential suicide risk or something and you're coming at it from mm. a much more kind of theoretical thing and I'm sort of but I'm interested in whether that sort of chimes with with your thinking yeah absolutely um and yeah it it, it seems that that is the almost the first port of call then if you've got someone um you know a disabled person or a learning disabled person and there's something that you're not um sure about in relation to their decisions or their, their lifestyle it's almost like the Mental Capacity Act could is seen as the tool to, to deal with that through. And I think what I'm finding, the more that I'm thinking about it and reading about it, is that often the, the issues are much bigger or absolutely nothing to do with the Mental Capacity Act. Um, and I often wonder, is this the sort of situation, you know, when I'm reading cases and I'm um, you know, reading JB recently, is this the sort of situation that, the the law commission had in mind that the drafts of the mental capacity act had in mind when they were creating this framework you know because i've as i was um saying before i think a lot of the 
the driving force originally was around the, the medical context. And that was probably at the forefront of people's mind. You know, we need to ensure that we've got a way in which um, doctors can continue their practice and healthcare professionals can continue essentially what they were doing anyway, but with some legal um, fallback. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it was originally about these decisions and preventing battery claims. And now it's just succeeded into these other spaces, I guess, that I'm not sure whether they necessarily had in mind, but because we've not got another route to deal with them, and um, we don't have this, the public law um, side quite sussed out yet, then everything, these complex issues are getting squished into boxes of capacity and incapacity or, um, you know, is it about autonomy or paternalism or empowerment or protection? And I, I think that it's, it's kind of showing up these issues. I think, you know, like I say, it's coming home to roost now that things that aren't necessarily about capacity and incapacity are getting squished into it. Oh, the technical term, squished. No, 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 I think it's exactly the right term. Bev, it's been fascinating. There are so many things I, I, I'd like to ask you about. One of them I'd have loved to ask you about is what we think about the idea, the very idea of capacity in zones where you can't really say the state's involved. So yeah. uh, contract and things like that. But I, yes. I flagged that in yeah. my in my review of your book on my website, and I'm just hoping your next book can can engage with some we of could, it. Yeah, we could talk uh, about it another time, definitely. Love to hear your thoughts, but I normally try and keep these to about 20 minutes. But thank you. It's, it's been really, really interesting and real real food for thought for people, even if it's people, when I sit in here going, I vigorously disagree with all of this. I don't see yes. what the problem is. And that's just as important yeah. as, oh, yes, actually, I completely agree. So it's, thank you. You've, you've really brightened up in a very stimulating way. A grey morning in the shed. So thank you so thank much, you. Beth. Thanks for inviting me.